Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I have a question for you, friends. Are you ready for a question? Here goes. What do you want for your children? You don't have to answer right away. You can take a second to think about it. Take a second. Do, 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 do. I'm not going to keep doing that. Sorry. I could hear podcasts being turned off all over this country and Western Europe. What do you want for your kids? Do you want them to be the president of the student body, the valedictorian of the class, prom queen, quarterback? Do you want them to get into the most prestigious schools because it kind of tickles you to think how good that sticker would look on the back of your Oldsmobile? Do you have an Oldsmobile? You might want to upgrade if you if you do. What do you want for your kids? Because the things we think we want and the things that will make your kids happy and healthy are not necessarily the same things. And I discussed this with this week's guest, Jennifer Wallace, who is a journalist and author specializing in psychology, parenting, and health in her new book, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. She delves into our modern dilemma of busyness, achievement, credentialing, and status-seeking. Katie Couric calls the New York Times bestseller, that's right, speaking of achievement, she calls the New York Times bestseller a wake-up call for all of us. And I've read it, as I do, as you know, because I care. And in so reading, I'm not sure I'd call it a wake-up call, but it was a really important reminder. All I could think of as she shared stories of kids who have gotten caught up in achievement culture, and all I could think of is how much I love my kids, just how much I want them to be the best version of themselves, whatever that looks like. And that the more we can focus on that as an outcome for which we wish for our children, the more our behaviors will align toward what's good for them, as opposed to what we think would look good on their resumes. And I say this as somebody who is very achievement-oriented, who is not immune to the desire for status and a desirable place on the social hierarchy for myself and for my children. And we talk about where that desire comes from in this conversation. A frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, Jennifer's work explores the intersection of societal trends and individual well-being. And that's important to keep in mind. What society tells us we want for ourselves and for our kids is not necessarily the same as well-being. In fact, it often runs counter to it. In this conversation, she and I discuss what Harvard can and cannot do for you or your child, the six factors that contribute to a great college experience, why it matters that our kids know they matter, stress, grind culture, and mental health, the family chore that Jennifer put off until Sunday nights, and what Alanis Morissette was telling us in her song, Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jennifer Wallace. Thank you for doing this. The book is really, I think it's really important. And, you know, reading it made me think about being more purposeful with my kids and being more mindful and just wanting them to know how much I love them instead of some concept of them, you know? Yes, absolutely. Do you remember the Alanis Morissette song, Perfect? I do. I don't remember the lyrics, but I do remember that. Sometimes it's never quite enough. If you're flawless, then you'll win my love. Don't forget to win first place. Don't forget to keep that smile on your face. Be a good boy. Try a little harder. You've got to measure up. Make me prouder. Oh. Does that ring a bell? It does ring a bell. And that is what I heard in so many of my interviews. From kids or parents? From both. Yeah. 
But I found a lot in my conversations was that it was sort of intergenerational, mm. that never enough or the, you know, contingent self-worth that I'm only as good as my GPA, I'm only as good as my promotion, I'm only as good as the house I can buy, that, you know, I think that kind of mindset really gets passed down if we're not aware of it and we don't sort of really rummage through our psychological addicts and really unpack the messages that we grew up hearing, either in our home or in our classrooms or in our communities. Or in the mirror. Or in the mirror. We're talking about your book, Never Enough, When Achievement Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. So to start, one, when does the pressure to achieve start for kids? And two, when does it become toxic? Yeah. So the pressure to achieve, I call it achievement creep. I think for some kids, it starts as early as nursery school. What? Yes. In communities like New York City and communities where there's a, a scarcity of nursery spots mm. and you have to interview. I had my kids in London and I was moving back to New York City. I applied to three or four nursery schools and I went for coffee with a mother and she said, oh no, you need to do eight or nine. <laughs> And I remember it was a rainy day. Well, obviously, was, Jenny, you're not applying to enough. Not enough. So I so don't you care about your kid? I know I'm a bad mom. So I walk into. I basically didn't realize it, but I broke into a nursery school and went up the elevator and went to the front desk and asked for an application because they were all due the next day. And the woman at the desk was like how did you get in here? You are not allowed to just be coming into our office asking for applications. But funny enough, that is the school my kids wound up going to. And that very woman and I were laughing about it the other day. She was the most extraordinary preschool admissions officer. And uh, so anyway, but yes, the creep starts earlier and earlier. It can be felt in some communities. You know, I'm raising my kids on the Upper East Side. You might call it the belly of the beast. I think it starts in nursery school. And it continues through kindergarten. Do you, what activities do you sign your kid up for? Do you, you know, in grade school, do you sign up for a travel team? Are you tutoring them on the side to get them into the advanced math classes in seventh grade? So anyway, all of these things, achievement creep gets earlier and earlier. And when does it become toxic? I'm not anti-achievement. I love achieving. My husband and I are high achievers. We get joy from it. I think it becomes toxic when our sense of self, our sense of self-worth gets totally tangled up in our achievements so that we're only as good as our next grade or GPA, or we equal our failures. So when our sense of self is so tangled up and coupled with our success and failure, that's when it becomes toxic. Well, since you brought it up, I'll ask you personally, is there a system you have to you know, call a timeout on yourself? Because you live on the Upper East Side. You got three kids. I might make some assumptions about where they go to school, but I bet they're good schools. And your husband probably has a pretty great job and you're a high achieving person yourself. How do you know when you're out of balance? So that is a great question. And I have really done a lot of soul searching in researching this book. And where I come out is that I've defined for myself what success is. What does a high achieving life look like? And what I've decided and what I express to my kids is that I am very ambitious, but I am ambitious for more than just my work. I'm ambitious in my marriage. I want to have a strong marriage. I'm ambitious with my friendships. I want deep, deep, meaningful connections with 
the friends in my life. I'm ambitious about my hobbies. I like trying to be good on the tennis court. I'm ambitious with looking for some joy. That's something that I, that I need to work on. I get a lot of joy from my work, but I need to, I need to diversify my joy portfolio. And so one of the ways I do that is when I find myself working too much, I will literally say out loud to myself at my desk, okay, that's enough for the day. Mm. I will break it and I will just say, that's enough for the day. Now it's time to go call a friend, check in on my parents, help with homework, whatever it is. So for me, it's really about figuring out the domains that are important to me in my life and making sure that I'm good enough in all of those domains. So do you have like a type A schematic on some wall in your house with the x-axis and the y-axis with friends here and then you know the cells that you've got to fill in to make sure you've talked to these 10 people who are important to you or well i do make time in my calendar in researching this book i spoke with a very wise researcher named tim casser i've traded emails with him oh he's so he wrote the high price of materialism is that right he has done decades worth of research on how our values impact our mental health and well-being. He's extraordinary. He'd be great on your podcast. Well, he was on sabbatical when I reached out to him. So I should probably, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but he was in transition. So I should probably reach back out to him. But again, let's talk about that for a second. The book is called The High Price of Materialism. And you talk about materialism in the book. So what did you talk to Tim about? So I was reading his research and I began the conversation by saying, you know, I'm raising my kids on the Upper East Side. They go to these very competitive schools. Short of moving out of my neighborhood and pulling them out of school, what can I do to protect my kids from excessive pressure? And he said, I don't buy the premise of your question. If you knew that you were raising kids in an environment that was toxic, that there was lead in the pipes, you'd move. You'd pull them out of that school, wouldn't you? And I was like, oh my God, my neck got all red. We weren't on <laughs> Guilty, God. guilty. And so like, I was really quiet and I, my mind was racing. I was like, I love New York and all my friends are here and my mm -hmm. parents live, you know, 45 minutes away and my kids love their school. And what does this mean? I can't pull them out. And then he very mercifully filled in the pause and he said, but if you are going to stay, then you need to be mindful about why you're staying. You need to be explicit with yourself and your kids about your values and you need at home to really buffer against the materialism in their environment. So when we talk about materialism as a goal, as a set of values, it's not that we're talking about logos. You know, sure, that's one form of materialism, but really it's a value set that is focused on status and money and prestige, really pegging your values to things outside of yourself and other people's evaluation of you intrinsic values. So, so what he explained to me and what the researchers found is that there are, we roughly have really roughly about a dozen core values inside all of us. And researchers split them up into two groups, extrinsic values and intrinsic values. And what he described and what his research has found is that values operate like a zero sum game. So the more time you're spending on an extrinsic pursuits, the career success, the money, the big house, the less time you have in your life for the intrinsic ones. And intrinsic ones would be, you know, wanting to be a better neighbor, being a close friend, being good to the environment, things like that, spiritual growth, personal growth. And the reason this is important is because extrinsic values 
have been strongly linked with negative mental health issues and substance abuse disorder, whereas intrinsic values have been linked with the well-being that we want for ourselves and for our kids. And it's not that the parents, you know, living on the Upper East Side or in relatively affluent communities, it's not that they have bad values. It's that they are constantly in an environment that is activating extrinsic values. And so if we are not aware of the gravitational pull in our environment of our certain values, we can become really victims of them. And so what Tim said to me and what I've really employed in my house is to make home a place where our values are clear, they are intrinsic. This is a great phrase that I use in the book that it's a Jesuit motto. We are not pursuing success to be better than others. We are pursuing it to be better for others. So that to me is the intrinsic pursuit of success. And that's what I try to embody and I encourage in my children. Give me an example of the difference between those two things. So the difference would be, I'm writing a book because I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I want that status symbol. I want that on my obituary. This book right here, never (laughs) enough. Yes. And it did hit the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. That's great. And you're fulfilled now because it's on the bestsellers list, right? Right. But I, I was so clear with my kids when I got the news from my editor. I was excited. And what we had talked about before we knew about the list before the book had even come out, my kids said to me, how will you measure success? I have three teenagers. (laughs) See what you've done. See what you've created in your kids. We are a highly verbal group. And so they said, how will you measure success? And I said, I will measure it when people are talking about, and I'm sure we'll get to the solution of the book, this idea of mattering, which is a, a concept that's been locked away in the ivory tower that you know this book really brings out. And I said, when people are using the word mattering and connecting with it and it's helping their lives and becomes part of the vernacular, that's success, not making the bestseller list, which in many ways can be extremely arbitrary. Right. We'll absolutely get to mattering. That was a great revelatory concept for me as a parent and maybe even as an individual. But why do you think when we focus on extrinsic goals we tend to get less pleasure out of life. And then you made a connection between extrinsic goals and self-medication. Yeah. Why do you think that exists? Well, I think one is, is that never enough treadmill Mm -hmm. that we get on. I also think, and this is Tim Kasser's research, that to pursue, you know, the next goal, the next goal, our sense of agency, our sense of really being in control of our lives and how we spend our time go down. We become controlled by the machine that is going to promote us, that is going to pay us. We, as humans, we want to have freedom and agency. And uh, the more we pursue those kinds of things, the less we have. So it's really the way. And also, when you go in pursuit of those things, you have less time for your connections with family, with friends, with things that we know are what actually brings that kind of lasting, nourishing sense of well-being. With the status seeking, which again, we are all evolved to feel, it feels great, but then your body keeps craving more and Mm. more because it's not a satisfying kind of, it's like junk food as opposed to intrinsic values, which really give a, a sense of nourishment. I'll also say one other thing that I found fascinating in the research. There's a theory, and I really believe it tracks true, that 
people become materialistic, not because they have bad values or because they like money and logos more than the next person. People become materialistic when they lack meaningful social connections. And so they hope that those materialistic markers, the career title, the big salary, the big house, the fast car, they hope that that will bring them into these relationships where they will finally feel validated and valued. The theory is we become materialistic because we lack social connection and we become materialistic in the hope that it will lead to social connection, that we will be worthy of that kind of connection. I guess I should sell my Ferrari then. Boy, I feel dumb buying two of those things. So let's talk about status. Let's talk about the social hierarchy. Now, it's clear that each of us is aware of our place on the social hierarchy, but like, why are we so why are we so geared up about our kids and where they may or may not end up on the social hierarchy? It was interesting. I spoke with some sociologists who have studied this, and um, Melissa Milkey up in Canada talks about how it is a biological imperative to status safeguard our kids mm. that children are a form, the form of reproductive success. So, <laughs> right. as right. parents, yeah, 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 sure, right. As parents, we are tasked with making sure that they keep their status. And what I find the most fascinating of all of this is that parents are told, you know, this generation, this, these modern parents with their intensive parenting style, always, you know, in their kids' business and all of that. What I have found in the research, actually, is what intensive parenting really is. And that is when parents sense fewer safety nets in the environment when they sense the the steep inequity, the crush of the middle class, the hyper-competition that's been ushered in with globalization, when parents feel those big macro forces, they are compelled to knit individualized safety nets for each one of their kids. And that is what intensive parenting is. It is not like parents are making the decision in their living room, we need to sign Johnny up for all these things and we need to do this so that, you know, we can make them a success. What There is a, I'm just so tired of the narrative where parents are being blamed because they don't have social structures. We don't have a society that we believe is going to take care of our kids. We, particularly mothers, are tasked with making their kids a success and providing each one of her kids an individualized safety net that will hopefully carry them through life. That is what intensive parenting is. Tell me about the pressure to be a super mom. Oh, it's awful. I had two out of three of my kids in London, and I didn't even realize how much the cultural forces were telling me what it means to be a good mother. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of the good mother, according to Sharon Hayes, who was a, wrote a seminal book about the contradictions of modern motherhood, she talked about how when when more and more white women started going into the labor force and choosing to work, making that choice to actually leave the home and work, that as a society, we really grappled with what does it mean to be a good mother if you're a mother who's choosing work over being home with her kids? And so what she argues in her book is that society sort of flooded mothers with these expectations that really made us 
spend more time with our kids, even though more of us were working outside of the home. Mm -hmm. So when you look at, you know, modern mothers today, even though 70% of us work outside the home, we are spending way more time than our own mothers did, you know, in the fifties when they were home with their kids. This intensive mothering is this social construct that in a generous way developed because of our tension over what it means to be a good mother. And I'll give you one little embarrassing anecdote. You know, I gave birth to my son, William, and I vowed I was going to be my very best self for him. I had stopped working. I had been working at 60 Minutes as a journalist, but I had moved to London. And so I decided to stay home because honestly, what I was getting paid was not going to pay for childcare. So I vowed to be my very best self, to read all the latest research, to dig into parent, to dig into child development the way I would a story. And I even contemplated going and getting a PhD in child development, (laughs) not to practice. Because that's going to help you be a better mom. Exactly. To feel certified. How nuts is that? Bananas. So instead I became a journalist that wrote about parenting studies and talked to experts. Do super moms support each other or do super moms make the problem worse for each other? I have to tell you, and I feel really strongly about this. I have yet to meet, and I promise you, I am not speaking in hyperbole. I have yet to meet a woman that has not been anything but generous. Any of the success I have had in my career and as a parent is on the backs of my female friends. Mm -hmm. I have male friends who are very supportive and I love them, but I can count three of them and versus my dozen of women who, who unlike me stayed in the workforce. And when it was time for me to go back to work, I would reach out and have coffee with them. And they would say, let me bring you up. Let me introduce you to everybody. I did not have one pushback to me, this, this narrative of scarcity and cat fighting and all of that. I think it is just a Netflix miniseries. I I don't think it's real. (laughs) Now, do I think maybe it was real you know, in the 60s and 70s when women were just coming up and there was real scarcity and real discrimination in the workplace, I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was some backstabbing and some sense that you needed to outdo each other. Mm. But I've been in the workforce now for three decades and I have not encountered a woman who has done nothing but lift me up. Scarcity is a big theme here because scarcity is a driver of a lot of these behaviors. And you even talk about parents behaving badly to try to get a leg up for their kids. You want to share one or two of those stories? Yes. One of the reasons I felt like I had to write this book was in 2019, the Varsity Blues scandal hit. Right. And if you remember, it was parents on the East Coast and the West Coast that got arrested and charged with an illegal bribery scheme to get their kids into selective colleges. And I thought, how did we get to the point where parents were now going to jail to get their kid into USC? Like, what's going on? I mean, Harvard, yeah. USC, come on, no. (laughs) And so, but I wasn't buying the narrative that was really popular in the press that these parents just wanted logos. They just wanted logos for their kids. I just wasn't buying it. So it set me on this path to write this book. And what I found was that parents are behaving, quote, badly Because like we said earlier, they are sensing fewer guarantees for their kids. I mean, when I was growing up, I don't know if we're the same age, but when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, 
life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable, healthcare, higher education, even food was more affordable. There was slack in the system. Mm. So a parent could be more relaxed in their parenting because they generally believed, because it had been true of generations, that kind of even with some zigzags and mistakes and setbacks, their kids would most likely be able to replicate their childhoods, if not do even better than their own parents did. But modern parents today are seeing a very different economic story. You know, they are seeing the steep inequity. They are feeling the crush of the middle class. They are betting big. And this is where, you know, the quote, bad behavior comes from, although I would not call it bad behavior in all cases. But parents are betting big that early childhood success, getting their kids into a selective college, will act as a kind of life vest in a sea of economic uncertainty. But what I found in my research and what studies have pointed to is that that life vest is drowning. It's feeling like a leaded vest for too many of the kids it's trying to protect. Yeah. Here in Atlanta, the University of Georgia is the best value in education for anybody. If you live in state, your kid gets in, they're basically going for free with all this, the Hope Scholarship and all this stuff. And so it's as competitive as getting into certain, you know, much more brandy schools in the Northeast and stuff. And so you really see people putting all their energy, even changing schools from like a private school to a public school, because there's only a certain number of slots available to any given school to get in, into Georgia. College admissions is really where scarcity rubber meets the road, right? And it's also the kind of the most competitive thing out there. You, you brought up a uh, statistic in the book that there's 27 high schools in the United States. 27. 27,000, sorry, 27,000 high schools in the United States. So if you took the top two students, traditionally called the valedictorian and the salutatorian, although I was salutatorian in my high school and I was definitely not the number two academic student, it was a speaking position. But if you took the top two students from every class, that's 54,000 students, they could fill the classes at the top 20 colleges twice. So before fellow parent, you jump in to the college admissions game Take a deep breath and understand the game that you're trying to play. I have a senior who's applying to college now. I feel very lucky that I was researching this book throughout his high school career mm. because I made a very conscious decision with my husband to not parent for the college application. What does that mean? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I wanted my weekends with my family. My husband and I have very similar values family and friends come before everything. And we wanted our weekends with our kids instead of going to robotics tournaments and going to travel soccer and all of that. We just, we didn't want that. And so we opted out of a lot of the sort of achievement stressors. We made a rule that we didn't talk about college until the spring of his junior year. Mm. And that was last spring. And before we spoke about colleges, I wanted him to understand why we would never allow the U.S. News and World Report into our home. <laughs> now, it's a little hard because it's online now, but right, yeah. symbolically not allowed in our home. And that is because if there is a bad guy in this whole achievement culture thing, it's the U.S. News and World Report. They were a you know magazine that was going bankrupt. And in 1983, they hit gold with this list that really manipulates parents, manipulates college data, makes itself seem very scientific because it comes up with single scores, like as though you can compare the University of Michigan 
with Swarthmore. <laughs> like what? Yeah. Anyway, so I had my son, I actually wrote in the book in a chapter called Confronting Grind Culture, a section called Reject the Premise. I had him read it and we talked about it as a family and reject the premise. Well, first it rips apart the US News and World Report. But what it does is it rejects the idea that the good life, it must be found by going through a good college. You know, I think most adults, I like to think, have enough perspective to know that that's not true, that there are people who have gone to highly selective colleges whose lives do not turn out the way they'd hoped, and other people who have gone to colleges that you'd never heard of before, whose lives turn out so much better than they even imagined. So in our home, we have made, my husband and I both went to Harvard, graduated. So we never talked about Harvard in our, in our home. We didn't take our kids to our reunions. <laughs> I was at a event in the North Shore at a large public school. In Long Island. In uh, the North Shore of Chicago. The fancy part on the lake. Exactly. And a senior raised his hand and he said, he said, did going to Harvard prepare you for all your success in your career? And I said, I want to be really careful with how I say this. No, of course it didn't. <laughs> Absolutely not. Harvard didn't wake up at four o'clock in the morning to write this book. Harvard doesn't make my marriage strong and my friendships deep. Harvard, you know, wasn't, honestly, at 60 Minutes, I think Harvard worked against me. Morley Safer, who I worked for, didn't go to college. Mike Wallace went to Michigan. Like, there were no, people didn't go to the Ivy Leagues who worked at 60 Minutes because they valued work ethic and hard work. And I think they saw those schools potentially as privileged kids who maybe didn't want to get their hands dirty. So I had to prove myself despite my degree. So no, I don't think Harvard gave it to me. I think I could have gone to any of the schools. And I said to the boy, you know, invest in yourself. It's you that's going to get the success. Don't invest in a logo. Invest in yourself. What did Harvard do for you? I will tell you, the biggest lesson I learned at Harvard was I was a volunteer. And actually, I talk about this in the book, not my personal experience, but I talk about before I tell you that, can I just preface it by saying, when researchers look at what is it about a college that leads to midlife happiness, career success, and even financial success, they've looked at, is it prestige? Is it the size of the college? Is it, if it's public or private? All of those things had a negligible effect, but they did find six factors that uniquely predicted midlife happiness, career, and financial success. And those six factors were did the student have a professor who knew them and invested in them? Did they have extracurricular activities where they felt connected with the other students there? Did they have a multi-semester project on campus where they could apply what they were learning and add value to the campus that way? And I would say my number one thing that I got out of college was working at a student-led homeless shelter. It was all student-led. We had no faculty that worked there. We ran the shelters. We supervised them. We stayed the night. We helped feed the homeless. And I made a very close connection with a woman named Sue. And she was one of the most influential people, adults in my life. And she was the first person who really 
showed me that I could make a significant impact on the world. She saw me as more than just my 19-year-old self. She saw me as somebody who was important, who could help her. And that was the biggest takeaway, that I mattered on that campus because of Sue. Yeah, that part of the book resonated with me. I, was, I went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, small liberal arts school. And I had a great relationship with a specific professor and good relationships with several others. And I'm very, very close with many of my college friends. I was just with five of them who came out to see me do comedy in Greenville, South Carolina on Friday night. And we were talking about this specifically and saying, like, I just don't really understand how people don't have these kinds of friendships. It's like so core to who this group of guys is that like, I, I can't imagine not having that in my life. And certainly I have that with a few people from high school with college friends, with business school friends. And it's like, no, it's not the, the highest brand name school in the country, but like, who knows what would have happened if I'd have gone to Harvard or HBS. I mean, I presume there's amazing people there too. I just don't know if how I would fit in there. Who knows? So I think you changed my, you enhanced my thinking. Before I had kids, I've said this before, before I had kids, I assumed I was going to want my kids to go to Princeton and Harvard and Yale because it would prove something about how smart my genetics are. But as you have kids and you get to know them and you look at them and you're like, oh, each of my kids is different. They each have different gifts, interests, uh, proclivities, whatever. And you're like, I just pray that we can get them to the right place where they can flourish. And that was the kind of thing that really, that's the main feeling I have that I took away from the book. And speaking of that, let's talk about mattering. Why does mattering matter? Oh my gosh, mattering. So I went in search of the healthy strivers. I wanted to know who was doing well, despite the pressures in their environment. I wanted to know if they had anything in common. What was home life like for them? What was their relationship like with their peers? How did they experience school? And so with the help of a researcher at Baylor, I found about 14 or 15 things that these, what I call healthy strivers had in common. I detail them all in the book, but they boiled down to this idea of mattering. These healthy strivers had a high level of mattering. That is, they felt valued for who they were deep at their core, away from their achievements and away from their successes. And importantly, they were also depended on to add value back to their home life, to their school, to their wider community. The kids I met who were suffering the most either felt like their mattering was contingent on their performance, that they only mattered one. Straight out of the Alanis Morissette song. Yes. And the other group, which kind of surprised me, were kids who felt like they were significant. Their parents told them they mattered and they were significant, but they were never relied on or depended on to add value back to anyone other than themselves. And so for these kids, they lacked social proof that they mattered. They heard it in the words, but they didn't see it. And so anyway, these healthy strivers, it wasn't that they didn't get anxious or down. They had setbacks and failures, but mattering acted like a protective shield, almost like a buoy that would lift them up and make them resilient. So their failures were not an indictment of their worth, like too many of the kids that I spoke with felt. What are some ways that we can get our kids to feel that they matter? How do we help them 
feel that part where other people depend on them? What are some things that contribute to that? So I hate to say it. (laughs) That's so old fashioned. This is like an Andy Griffith episode. Come on. So family is the first introduction to society for a kid. Mm. So for parents to teach your child that they can be an important contributing member of the family is a way to really instill mattering. And so, my gosh, we tried chores for so many years in our house and I gave up for a while. And then when I started doing this book research, I realized my kids would really benefit from them. So the first thing I did was I stopped calling them chores. And instead I started saying, I started keeping a sheet on the refrigerator of family matters, things that, things that we needed to get done as a family that week. And so I got that idea from a mother I interviewed in Maine who did the same thing with her kids and, and her kids would initial what they were able to do that week. How else do kids feel like they matter? Problem solving. So my kids, my oldest has earned the dubious distinction of being my tech support, which is a horror show of a job. <laughs> yes, as we learned with your microphone earlier. Horrible. I am the worst with tech. And it got so bad when I was writing the book that I would sometimes email him in the middle of class because I thought I would lose the document. This was during COVID when he was yeah. And I'd be like, I just lost this document. And he would pretend to go to the bathroom and come and retrieve my document. But boy, did he feel like he mattered. Employing our kids to help us problem solve family issues, real life family issues. So not just like making things up just to give them responsibility, but really finding ways that they can be contributing members of your family. So my oldest son, one last example I'll give you of that. He has a younger brother, I have three kids, and his family job was taking his younger brother to school every day. Even if he was off from school, or even if he had a free period, he would have to get up, take his brother safely to school. That was his family responsibility because his dad had to work and I had to work. So he felt significant. He felt important and he had that social proof that he mattered. Mm. What chores did you do as a kid? I mowed the lawn and I was horrible about it. My (laughs) dad was so- I like that your dad didn't have gender stereotypes in terms of the work that he assigned. No, we had no boys in the family. So I- Oh, there you go. Okay. That'll do it. I could decide anytime that weekend that I wanted to mow the lawn and then I would wait and he would ask gently- you know, do you think you're going to do it today? Do you, and just very gently. And then it would be, the sun would be setting on Sunday night and mm. sitting at dinner. And he would say, you know, the, it's going to get dark soon. And right. I'd be like, oh, fine. And so I'll tell you a little funny story. So I go to college. I have a younger sister who's four and a half years younger. So that was my chore and I hated it. And I was kind of horrible. I go away to college and I realize how sweet my parents are and how devoted my dad was. So the first weekend back, I get up early on Saturday morning. I start mowing the lawn without him asking. He comes outside and he said, Jenny, we have a landscaper now. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Your dad asking when you were going to get around to that task sounds like me asking my contractor when certain (laughs) things are going to be done. (laughs) He waits to the last minute as well. You talk a little bit about you know, some of the games that we have to play, if I'm going to uh, hold myself to Tim Casser's standard that we choose to play, kind of teach our kids a little bit of insincerity. Like you have to volunteer because if you don't volunteer, then you don't have a volunteer thing to write on your college application. 
Is that why I remember slacktivism from your book? <laughs> slacktivism was a term I heard where people would put up, they would virtue signal on social media during Black Lives Matter, the black box, but mm. they actually never did anything to actually other than that. So that's, that's where the slacktivism idea comes from. So I have two schools of thought on this. The first one is actually the research finds that forcing kids to do volunteer work is actually a pathway to getting them engaged with the world around them. Mm. You know, unfortunately, there are some schools that I met who said, you know, we just don't want to force our kids into doing it. We don't, we think it's insincere. But what they don't know is actually the research points that kids need exposure. And it's through the exposure that they can realize that the world needs them. So with our kids, I adopted something that a school in Cleveland, Ohio did. It's St. Ignatius School, and I profile them in the book. And one simple thing they did to help their students adopt what I call an other-oriented mindset, so not to be so self-focused on themselves, but to really move their lens outwards. At 2 o'clock every day, the lights go off in in the high school, and the kids put their heads on their desks. And over the PA, uh, it could be a faculty member, someone on staff, a student, goes over the loudspeaker and talks about a genuine need in the world. Not to lecture, not to say you boys need to do something about this. It's an all-boys school. Simply to raise awareness. And when I was there, it was about climate change and how it disproportionately affects families living in poverty. And so I realized in my house, my husband and I are very good about modeling volunteering. I'm on the board of the Coalition for the Homeless. I'm very involved. My husband's very involved in an educational nonprofit. But what I have found is that it's not enough to model. We need to be explicit that there are people out there that need our help. And so at our dinner table, we adopted that school in Cleveland. And when we would talk about current events, which is what we usually do, we started talking about, do you think there's anything we could do to help in some small way? So I'll just give you a brief example. We live in New York City. We have a a real crisis of migrants arriving oh, yeah. from South America with no clothes in the winter. Like, you know, and so we were talking about this. Take them to Century 21. That's it's it. Yeah. Come on. So my daughter said, I think we should go in our closets and find things and ask our friends if they have clothes. And then let's drop them off at one of the hotels where they're being housed. And I thought, how much more impactful is that? Then my daughter cleaning out her closet and saying, oh, let's go give these clothes away and just dropping them at a, at a bin to really know there are specific people who have a need and you have the ability to fill that need. Yeah, that connection is neat. I've been thinking about disappointment recently, like, and some parents' unwillingness to teach their kids how the world works or to let them see how the world works. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about parents borrowing money to buy tickets to go see Taylor Swift. And it just made me really sad. Not that there's some people in the world who can't afford Taylor Swift tickets. I think that's just the way the world works. But because some people are so unwilling to teach their kid the lesson that sometimes there's things you can't afford. And you know what we'll do instead of going to see Taylor Swift live for $1,000 a ticket? We'll go to lunch to your favorite place, and then we'll go see the Taylor Swift concert movie. Yes. 
And you're teaching your kid a very, very valuable lesson. And you're making your family that much more financially secure in the process. I don't think you talked about it in the book, but do you have any thoughts on the importance of letting kids experience disappointment? I have something that I talk about in the book that is related to this. And it is, it's sort of on the other side of the spectrum of what you're describing, which Mm. are parents who have enjoyed some affluence and so are raising their kids in a lifestyle that most likely their kids will not be able to replicate. And so in the book, I call it the encore effect, which is a particular burden I saw among the students that I interviewed who felt like, well, I'll give you one little story on this. So a mother was telling me that her eighth grade son, she was tucking him in to bed. He said to her, where would I work if I wanted to be an architect? And she said, you can work everywhere. The world needs architects everywhere. And he said, I zillowed our house and you send me to private school on the website. It says how much that is. And I Googled the average architect salary and I cannot raise my kids the way you have raised me. It does not take a forensic accountant to understand a parent's lifestyle. And so some of the healthiest families I met deliberately chose to live under their means well under their means. And actually there's research that backs this up that some of the healthiest kids mentally are those who have parents who live in solidly middle-class neighborhoods, but who could afford to live in more affluent neighborhoods. And so two things are going on there. One is that those kids are not feeling the stress, financial stress of their parents day in and day out to be able to keep up and afford those lifestyles. So their parents maybe don't have to work as late or they're not as stressed uh, when the roof needs to be changed. But it's also giving kids an opportunity to replicate their childhoods without having to work a very narrow band of job, investment banker, corporate lawyer. So these parents were very deliberate. Instead of you know flying business class, they would choose to fly in the back of the airplane They could afford a country club, but instead they sat at the town pool. So they made deliberate choices, wanted to instill those values in their kids. Hmm. The book made me think a lot. I appreciate the work that went into it. What do you hope the impact is on the reader in the world? I hope for two things. I hope that parents stop being blamed for this rise in you know, the intensity around achievement. I hope that parents feel seen in this book and are able to put into context their anxieties and fears. It's not to let them off the hook. They still have to be mindful of what they're doing in their home. But the second thing I hope is that people really absorb mattering in their lives, at work, in their homes, with their marriages, in their wider community. It is a concept that is so central to mental health in adults and teens. And I am so thrilled with the response to it. People are really finding it helpful and useful. So anyway, that's what I hope, that people find use out of this idea. The book is called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It by my guest, Jenny Wallace. Jenny, where can our listeners find out more about you? So um, you could head over to my Instagram at Jennifer Brahani Wallace or on my website at jenniferbwallace.com. 
Morley Safer would never mess up an outro like that. But we will put links to those sites in the episode notes. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Jennifer Wallace for making the time to be a part of the podcast and for sharing insights into Never Enough, a book that I got a lot out of, and I think you might too. Number one, again, like I said in the intro, maybe not a wake-up call, but a very important and healthy reminder. And my kids are they're in middle school going into high school next year. So it's a good time to remember what it's about, what the goal is. The goal is to love my kids and to cherish the days that I have with them, not to try to set them up to be the top of the dean's list, the honor roll captain of the football team, lead role in the play, blah, blah, blah. It's about encouraging them to become the best versions of themselves. And it doesn't mean removing every single obstacle from their path, nor does it mean leaning on them so hard because I don't trust that they have an appropriate amount of internal motivation to achieve what they want to achieve. It's finding balance and it's just loving them for them, making sure they know they matter. And I think that's worthy of a great deal of reflection for me and for you so that we're really emphasizing the right kinds of things. So our kids grow up into the best versions of themselves and that they are, quote, happy, that is fulfilled, content, uh, not like gleeful, happy, healthy, most importantly, and kind people who get a lot of joy out of being being the best versions of themselves. I'm going to get out of here before I say best version of themselves again, but you know what I mean. All right. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Please take a second to rate and review Crazy Money on your favorite podcast app. And we'll talk to you next week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.